The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. If you would turn with me to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23 is the time of the year where we often think about the birth of Christ. Uh, but here we are going to a passage that's talking about the death of Christ. But I think it's obviously important that we remember that he came for a specific purpose. When he came here, he didn't just come to teach some good sayings and some wise teachings that would be helpful <laughs> in your life. He didn't just come to perform miracles and to walk on water and to do these great things and to heal a bunch of people. He came to this earth to die. And, and not just to die for a people, <laughs> he came to die for you. And so we join him here in Luke 23 as he's on the cross. And I want to look at verse 32. It says this, And there were also two others, malefactors, led with him to be put to death. Now, a malefactor just means an evildoer. There's another place in Scripture where it's, it's translated as thieves, which the, the root word there means a thief or a robber. And, of course, a robber is someone who takes something by force, is a violent person. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He says they don't realize that they are crucifying the Son of God. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. I want to just slow down here and unpack just a few things. I can't help but, but to address some things. He is on the cross there. And as he looks down, he sees these people already begin to part his clothes. Imagine how sad it would be if your children came up to you and they started dividing what you had before you even passed away. And you were just sitting there watching it, right? That's what's happening to Jesus. As they mock him, and the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. They are mocking God by, by saying to him, All these people that he so-called saved and healed, but yet he can't save himself. And they were using that as an evidence to them that he really wasn't who he said he was. Of course, we know that it's an evidence to us that he is way better than what he ever said he was. He, he was showing to us his love for you and that he had the power to come down off of that cross any second that he wanted to. But yet his love for you compelled him to stay through all of that mocking, through all of that pain. And the soldiers also mocked him coming to him and offering him vinegar. Man, can you imagine? <laughs> you've, been, you've been so thirsty. You ever experienced that being thirsty on a hot day? And you come up and you say, I'm, you know, I want some water. And somebody gives you a glass of vinegar. Man, what a slap in the face, right? 
and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in a place uh, of, uh, and letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. You know, what, what a mockery. You know, Jesus came as, as the Messiah, as the king of kings. They misunderstood what he meant when he said that he was coming with the kingdom. They thought that he meant that there was a physical kingdom. And so as a last uh, mocking statement, they hung this sign above his head that said, here's the king of the Jews, behold him. You notice that it was written in Greek and in Latin and Hebrew, three different languages. I know Brother Neil Honey has, has done studies on the fact that there's uh, groupings of three all throughout the crucifixion, numbers of three. You see it everywhere. And one of the malefactors, which were hanged, railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today, Shalt thou be with me in paradise? Let's go over to Matthew 27 really quickly, and then we'll come back here. Matthew chapter 27, we're going to go to another account. And verse 44 of Matthew 27 says, The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. Now, we read, even over there in Luke, that there was two thieves crucified with him. One on his left hand, one on his right hand. Okay? So when, when it says here in Matthew 27, verse 44, it says the thieves, that's in plural, <laughs> that means that both of them were also mocking him. They were casting the same in his teeth, which is a, which is a gritty expression for, for the kind of mocking that they're doing. Right? Now what, what are they saying? What kind of mockings were they casting in his teeth? Verse, verse uh, 39, And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself if thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Have any of you ever liked being misunderstood? <laughs> I hate it. I, 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 it. Everything within me makes me want to go and correct that, that misunderstanding. Well, can you imagine... As they are saying to Jesus, you, you say you're going to destroy the temple and build it back in three days. They were, they were thinking that he was talking about that physical temple. <laughs> and all the time he was talking about the temple of his body. That he would break down for you and it would be rebuilt in three days. Right When he would rise again from the grave. But nobody understood him correctly. But yet what did you see him do from the cross? Did he correct them? No, he silently endured all of the mocking for you. That's, that's more than I could do. And then he says here, Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others. 
Himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. (laughs) You see, they, they give one last test to say, if you do this thing, then we'll believe you. They're not going to believe him if he came down off the cross. <laughs> they watched as he healed lepers. They watched as he, as he raised people from the dead. As he, as he caused the blind to see. He did all these miracles in their eyes, in their sight. Yet they still didn't believe him. So what a shame that they are sitting here crucifying the Son of God, crucifying your Savior. And they say, if he's really the king, then he can come down off of this cross and then we'll believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now. If he will have him, for he said, I am the son of God. Now now they're questioning his sonship and they're saying that that. God doesn't even love him enough as his so-called son to come in and save him. You see see what a miscarriage of justice is going on right here. And then the thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. So the thieves, both of them, not just one. There's not a good thief and a bad thief, right? They're They're both bad. And they're both mocking him, saying these exact same things. And, and in their defense, <laughs> he does not look like the Son of God. He does not look like the King of kings, the King of glory in this moment. This would not be what you would expect. You would, ignite, you would not expect your Messiah, the King of kings, to come and to submit himself to a death like this on a cross where he would die alongside criminals, where he would be mocked and spit on, and where his very sonship of of God would have been called into question. That would not be what you would think. And then as he sits there with that mockery of that uh, crown of thorns placed down on his head and there's blood streaming down and you can see his bones from the whippings and the scourgings, And you can hear him as he suffocates and as he's fighting for breath on the cross. That doesn't sound like a God to me. And as he's thirsty, and as he's not even saying a word against them as they mock him, Jesus is sitting there silently taking all of the misunderstandings, all of the judgment, and the thieves alongside him, you would think that if anybody, they would have a little compassion because they're also fighting for breath. Their their last breaths are precious, and it seems to me as if they're wasting them and also mocking this other person who's being crucified. So who are the thieves? We read uh, in one of the other Gospels, I believe it's in the book of uh, Mark, about this man called Barabbas, who was apparently a well-known prisoner. Now, he was caught in, in a uh, sedition, and he was actually uh, accused of murder in the midst of that sedition. And it says that there were others there with him that were, that were captured along with that insurrection. 
Now, it is totally possible that these thieves, that these violent criminals were a part of Barabbas's gang, that they were a part of this thing. I mean, there were several of them. Apparently, there were three crosses that day, and they were going to have three executions. Everybody cried out for Jesus to be crucified and Barabbas to be released. Now, that's speculation. It's totally possible they were just other common thieves that were unrelated. But we do know this. We do know that they were bad folks, and, and the thief later would admit on his own testimony that they deserve what they got, okay? They deserve death, okay? So these aren't just little you know, pickpockets. These are people that deserve death, okay? Now let's go back to Luke. I want to read that little passage again. I want to see if you can realize what's going on here. Luke 23, that's where we were. So remember, you've got a situation where your Savior is being mocked by everybody. He's being mocked by the priest. He's being, he's being mocked by the soldiers that are there. That they're, They've been mocking him all day, and now they're sitting there parting his garments. And then you've got even the passers-by that are mocking him. And then you've got even the criminals that are being crucified with him mocking him, both of them casting the same in his teeth. And then one of the malefactors says something else. He railed on him in verse 39 saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. Notice this. He, he uh, indicts himself by showing his own selfish focus, right? You've got somebody who what he really wants is he wants himself to be saved off of this cross. He says, this is his last-ditch effort. He says, if you really are the Christ, like quit playing around, save yourself and save me. Get us off of this cross. But the other answering rebuked him. We've got a little change here. Something has happened. <laughs> Something has happened from, this, from both of these thieves going and, and talking about Christ. Well, Jesus said, if you're really the Christ, save yourself. If, if God really does love you, he'll bring you down off of this cross. If you're really the king of the Jews, then, then you ought to get down from this cross. And they're mocking him. But yet now this one rebukes the other and says, Dost not thou fear God? Now, the fear of God is something that, that not everybody has. I don't know if you realize that. <laughs> Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God is, is essentially the reverence for Him. You know, there is, a, there is a time coming when there will be a fear of God that even the wicked will call for the rocks to fall on them to hide them from the wrath of God. But this is, this is another type of fear. This is the type of fear that I have for my Father, right? A reverence. This is the type of fear that a child of God will have for God. That you revere Him. He says, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? He says, Don't you realize you're on the cross too? <laughs> and then he says, And we indeed justly, 
Now, this is something that you don't see every day. I don't know about you, but I am really good at coming up with excuses to defend my failures. I don't know if anybody else is good at that, but, you know, I guess I'm sort of creative, but I can really turn on the creativity when it comes to justifying some failure. You know, Meredith will come in and say, you know, uh, you know, why didn't you do those things that I asked you? And I said, ah, oh, well, you know, I had a headache. I was tired. I was, I was thinking about you. I was praying for you here. And so that's why I didn't do it, right? You can get really creative and spin it the way you want it. But here's something that you don't see every day. Someone who says, I deserve this. I deserve this condemnation. You don't see that. You don't see that in somebody who's not a child of God. You know, every once in a while, I keep going back to this, you encounter people and prosecuting all the time. Brother Chris could give you stories, I'm sure. You come across people that, that say, not guilty. I'm pleading not guilty. Let's take this thing to trial. I'm not, I didn't do none of this stuff, blah, blah, blah. But then you, you come across some people every once in a while that said, well, I, I did it. I mean, I'm guilty. You know, I, I'm not going to really contest this. And, and you see, there's something special about that person, right? There's something special about somebody who realizes that you have failures, <laughs> that you can fail. And this man, he sees something that that other thief doesn't see. Something that he didn't see moments before this. That's what's so special about this account. For we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. He goes from mocking Jesus to saying, this man doesn't deserve to be here, but I do. You know, that's what it is to be born again. To be a child of God is to realize that Jesus didn't deserve to be on that cross. I did. Ultimately, it's, it's, there's two major things that we see this thief show to us, but you also see in yourself. For one, he sees himself as he really is. He sees himself as a sinner. He says, I deserve to be here. You, have you experienced that in your life? You've experienced condemnation over your sin? Ashamed? You've been ashamed of your sin? You've been ashamed of yourself? And, and, you, and you come in conviction before God. Conviction of your sin. If you're coming there, many people will tell you that you reach out to God, that you come to Him, and you say, God, I'm so ashamed of my sins. Please forgive me of my sins. And then that is what saves you. God's response to your, your questioning. But you got to realize, <laughs> the fact that you are coming with a conviction of your sin means that something has already happened to you. Something is within you already. Because you realize... Before that point, you're just dead. <laughs> you're dead. 
you know, it's really, it would be very foolish of, of me to say to one of you, if I came down to, to Brother Mackey and I said, Brother Mackey, if you will lift up your hand and grab my hand, then I'll give you life. I mean, isn't that foolish? Because you realize if he reaches his hand up and grabs my hand, it was proof that he is alive, right? That's what's happening here. This thief is not reaching out to God to get life. He's reaching out to him because he has it. It's an evidence of life within But now what happened, what happened before this point is, is miraculous, okay? Because you had him mocking Christ. He didn't see there anything other than someone dying who claimed to be the Son of God. But yet now he sees himself as deserving of being on this cross. And then he says to Jesus, Lord, remember me. When thou comest into thy kingdom. Man, now this is special. <laughs> he calls out to this bloodied figure sitting there on this cross, dying as a criminal, that everybody is mocking, that he himself was mocking just moments before, and he calls out to him, Lord. Now you see that only through the eye of faith. Amen. Because your physical eye and, and your mind would tell you, this is nothing more than another person who has claimed to be some deity. And here he is, he's at the end, and it was all empty promises. But yet he sees this person as Lord. So not only, not only does he see himself as he is, the second marker of a child of God is you see God for who he really is. He didn't he saw right through that bloodied figure of a criminal. He saw his king. He saw the king. He says, "Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom." That doesn't look like a king to me, but through the eye of faith, I believe with every fiber of my being that as Jesus died on the cross, he was the king dying for me. And I love what Jesus said to him. He said, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Mm. One day, one day he'll say that to me. Today, John Morgan, you'll be with me in paradise. You know what that tells us? <laughs> that tells us some beautiful things. We've all had loved ones that have passed away. Many people would tell you that they're going to sit there in that grave. They're going to sit there in that little casket, and they're going to wait for Jesus to come back again. Now, Jesus tells us something. He says, today... <laughs> Today, when you leave this world, when you are released from the shackles of this prison of your body, your Savior is right there and you are right there with Him instantly to be with your Savior. Do you think, do you think that in His great love wherewith He loved you, that He would be satisfied with waiting until He came back to get you? No, <laughs> no. 
That would be like that would be like when I married Meredith and we had our wedding celebration and then they said, "All right, now wait a couple years before y'all can live together." <laughs> no way, Jose, right? Jesus loves you. When you are released from this body, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When you close your eyes in death, you will see Him. Praise God. That doesn't sound so bad, does it? Now, I mean, also, your body will be laid in the ground. And guess what? He also purchased your body. He also owns your body. And so He is going to raise up that body. It's going to be glorified. But your soul, in the meantime, will be with Him. And that sounds pretty good to me. So what do we see here? We see an example of someone being born again on the cross. How do we know He was born again and not just converted? That's a great question. Well, for one, we know that by His own admission... He was on that cross justly, okay? He was a thief, a robber. That's not to say that you can't find a child of God in a prison, okay? I believe there are many that are in prison currently. You know, the, the, uh, the trick about identifying a child of God is that, or uh, someone who's not a child of God <laughs> It's really difficult because you can't sit there and look for evidences of being like the world because we all have that, right? You've got to look for something else. You've got to look for an evidence of being a child of God, okay? But we do see this. He is mocking Christ. He cannot see. He cannot see through the eye of faith that this is the Redeemer. There are some among that crowd that do see that. I, know, I hope you realize that. What the image that we get is everybody's mocking him, and in, in a large sense, everybody was. And he had been abandoned by his disciples, yet there were a few, some brave women <laughs> that stayed behind and were there mourning his death, looking on him as their Savior. And also John was there with them, looking on his friend, the person that he saw as his Savior. But yet these two thieves were mocking him and saying things to him that, that indicate to us they had no spiritual mindset or spiritual eyesight whatsoever. And then moments later, he has one of the greatest declarations of faith that we see in Scripture. You know, there were several that said to, said to Jesus, he said, Lord, you can heal my servant even from afar. I believe in you that much. And, and, and he says, I haven't seen that great faith, no, not in all of Israel. There were some great statements of faith. But look at this. <laughs> I mean, this is a man who's looking at someone who does not look like a king. He does not look like a god. He doesn't look like anything other than a normal criminal. But yet he calls out to him and he says, Lord... Now that is the eye of faith, a complete, radical difference from before. What but the grace of God can account for that radical change? <laughs> you think he was sitting up there just thinking, well, hold on now, hold on. He's, he has 
uh, satisfied all of these uh, prophecies, I think he really is the Son of God. No, he's not sitting there computing and coming to this on his own. He is coming to this by the revelation of God within him. Amen. And you know, when we say the revelation of God, we start thinking, is this some type of uh, strange, uh, strange uh, Christian philosophy, these, these revelations coming down? And every single new birth is a revelation from God, okay? It, every single child of God that is born again, it is a miracle in your life where God takes your dead heart and He says, arise. And He calls you to life. That is a calling. It is a revelation. It is a miracle where God takes you from being nothing to making you something, right? And, and sometimes it's over-mystified in the fact that it's got to be it's got to be some experience. It's got to be something that you can point to and say, man, I was born again. That's why a lot of times people like to give it some things to do. You can, you know, uh, come up to the altar, accept the Lord, you know, pray this prayer, do these things. They like to give some things that you can check off and say, well, you, if you've done these things, you're born again, right? The reality is that if you are walking up to do those things, you're already born again, okay? It's already, you've already been given life by God. But I don't want to under-mystify it because what, what is really happening to you in the new birth is that God Himself has come to you. He doesn't send an angel. He comes to you Himself and He calls you to life. And from that moment, you may, not, you may not understand doctrinally everything about God. You may not understand exactly how you were saved, how He went to the cross for you, but something happens. You begin to realize who you are, and you begin to realize who He is. Okay? Now the problem we've got is that we still live in these sin-cursed bodies. <laughs> right? I don't know if any of you have ever have recognized that or, or not yet, <laughs> but we live in some sinful bodies. I still have sinful thoughts, and I commit sinful actions, but yet in my heart, there is a yearning for my God. There is a burning for Him. There is an understanding of who I am, an understanding of who He is. And that's what this thief on the cross has that he didn't have before. God came to him in those intervening moments and gave him life. So what does that teach us? What does that teach us about salvation and about the new birth? If you go over really quickly to the book of John, John chapter 3, Jesus is teaching Nicodemus about what the new birth is. Jesus answers Nicodemus's question that he asked. In verse 5 of chapter 3, he, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto you, 
uh, saying to thee, you must be born again. He's, he's saying, in order to see the kingdom, you've got to be born again. There has to be some spiritual life within you. You realize that in order to reach out to God, you have to believe that He exists, right? You have to come to Him believing already that He is there to answer your prayers. Therefore, when you reach out at all, it's not to get life. It is an evidence to you that you already have it. And that is what Jesus is teaching uh, this Pharisee, Nicodemus. He says, that which is flesh is flesh, that which is spirit is spirit. These are different things. You can't through the flesh gain the spirit. You can't with the spirit uh, gain the flesh. They're different things. As Brother Chris has said many times, we don't believe in evolution, that something can evolve out of some, out of some uh, amoeba to who we are now. We don't believe that. But yet so many people believe that you can evolve with actions of your flesh into a spiritual creature. No, it, it, there's a reason that it's called the creature within us. Because it's a creation. It is creation by God. And then, when, and then he says, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, and canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. He compares it to the wind that's blowing. We don't control the wind. The wind blows where it wants to. The Spirit of God comes to you and gives you life as He pleases. That's how the new birth comes. It pleased the Spirit to give that thief on the cross life that he could see before his very eyes, his Redeemer, as he sat beside him on the cross. What a special, special experience he got there. To wake up and to see through the eye of faith your Redeemer bleeding out for you beside you. But notice as Jesus says, so is every one that is born of the Spirit. Here, Jesus gives us a universal principle. Now, universal principles are difficult, okay? <laughs> I don't know uh, if you've realized this, but hardly is there ever a situation where there's not some kind of exception, right? That's why I don't know if it was, if it was uh, law school or what that has, that has brainwashed me. I hardly ever say a statement to a, to a client that is a universal, this always applies statement. Because there's always going to be that one situation where it doesn't apply. But Jesus says, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. He tells us that everybody that is born again is born again the exact same way. All right? So we see this thief on the cross as he's born again, and we know that everybody's born again the same way. Therefore, how was that thief on the cross born again? Because how he was born again is how I was born again, right? How was he born again? Did you notice this? I read this passage two different times to us. Did you notice at any point 
was there a preacher down on the ground preaching to them the gospel, <laughs> saying, Behold, this is Jesus Christ. If you believe in him, you'll be saved. He came to redeem you from your sins. You're a really awful sinner. You, you need him. Nobody was preaching the gospel. Did you see him on the cross reading from the Bible and saying, Man, this is the word of God. This is what I need to be born again. Did you see him be baptized on the cross? Did you see him uh, be led through a specific prayer? There was no altar that he went down to, but yet one moment he was cursing Christ and the next moment he saw him as king. You see this? This is, this is life-changing. This is beautiful. You see this man on a cross at the end of his life by his own admission dying a just death. He deserved to be there. And yet he sees this person suddenly as his Savior. Did anybody preach to him? Did anybody get to him and say, please, would you accept Christ? Would you pray this prayer with me? Would you read this track? Would you do this thing? Would you give this donation to the church? Whatever it is, fill in the blank. He didn't do any of that. Some might say, well, he reached out to God and he asked God that he would remember him when he came into, that, into his kingdom. <laughs> We've already answered that question. The fact that he is reaching out to God at all is proof. It's, it's not him getting life. It's the fact that he already has it. It is an evidence to us. There's enough evidence from this passage that we could convict this man of being a child of God. <laughs> right? <laughs> Not based on how God answers him, but based on his own statements alone, he proves to us what God had already done within him. So why is that so special? Why is it so special to realize that this man was born again on the, on the cross? And that everybody who's born again is born again that way. And what, what is that way? It's absent of any individual effort. It's absent of somebody else's effort. It is the work of your Savior alone in your salvation, in your life. That's why it's so radical. Why is it then? Why is it that the majority of people, not just Christians, but even of other spiritual beliefs, want to put the onus on the person, want to, want to make it be some work that you've got to do? In order to get this state of enlightenment, in order to get to this state of salvation, you've got to do all of these things. There is an innate part of every one of us as a broken, fallen uh, creature... <laughs> You want to be the God. You want to be the king on the throne. You notice when we see the images of the throne room in Revelation and the singing that's going on there, what songs are reserved for me? <laughs> what songs are reserved for you? The singing and the worship and the glory is all to the Lamb. It's all to the King. There's not going to be any golden stars there for me. <laughs> There's not going to be any pats on the back as, as I get there and Jesus says, man, I'm so glad you, you heard my message. I'm so glad that you accepted that gift that I gave you. And I'm so glad 
that you went and you saved this person and this person and this person and this person. And behold, all these people, glory be to you. You did a good job. That's not how it works. Every single person in glory will be there because of the salvation of your Savior. Because of the goodness of your God. That's why this thief on the cross is such a radical, radical belief. It's a radical teaching that God gives us. This man was born again by the work of God, not by his own uh, actions, not by the actions of another. Because I don't know about you, but I, I see who I am. <laughs> and it burdened me all of my life to think about me having to accept the gift that God had given me. Because I knew that I don't do things correctly most of the time. And I knew, I, I wondered and I re-accepted him and I re-prayed to him over and over again thinking, if I didn't do it right this time, please Lord, please let it be right this time. And the beauty of what we see here on this thief on the cross is that it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Christ who loves you. Do you really think that he would go through all of those efforts, that he would bleed on the cross for you and suffer abandonment, my God, and would then say, good luck. I hope you can make the best of that gift I've given you. No way. No way. He will have you there in glory with Him. He will not be denied your presence. He is coming for you. I pray that we might be encouraged by that. Also remember this. So is everyone that is born again. We see a thief on the cross that's born again that way. What does that tell us? Everybody is born again absent of their actions, absent of the actions of others. It is solely a gift of God. What does that mean? That means that all of those people that other belief systems cannot account for, what about the people who, who have mental handicaps, who cannot comprehend the teaching of the gospel? How are they supposed to accept the gospel and be saved? What about those people in foreign lands who have never yet heard the gospel message? What about the baby in the womb who's been aborted or is being miscarried? What about those? If the gospel can't reach to them, then they're doomed. That's what many people would say. Or they would create an exception for them. But God says there's no exceptions. He says so is everyone that is born again. Do you think your God, that his hands are too short that he cannot save? No, he can reach in to the mind and the heart of someone who cannot understand who cannot even function on their own and save them with His holy arm. And He can come in and He can save that infant in the womb. It does not matter. There is no limit to the grace of God. There is no obstacle that He cannot overcome. His love will prevail over every single one of His children. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.